Hi, it's Jordan from the Poop Plus Podcast. And just so we can get some legal stuff out of the way, while the Poop Plus Podcast makes a solid effort to be accurate in the topics we discuss, all thoughts and opinions of the hosts and guests are their own and should not be portrayed as actual medical advice. Remember, we are a podcast that talks about poop. And even though there are some medical professionals present, you should never take any of the discussions in this episode as actual medical advice. We are a poop cast, for goodness sakes. If you have any concerns about your dog, please consult your veterinary professional for advice. Thank you. And welcome to this episode of the Poop Plus Podcast, a podcast dedicated to normalizing poop conversation and discussing all things number two. I am your host, Jordan Arredondo, and along with my good friend, Bobby Malone, we discuss with our guests a usually uncomfortable but quite humorous topic, poop. In this episode, some of the topics we discuss include a canine's digestive system, what the difference between grain and grain-free dog food is, why is it so important to pick up after your dog, and do dogs get hemorrhoids? Gosh, I hope not. In this episode, Bobby and I are joined by Katie Castillo, a doctor of veterinary medicine at North Austin Animal Hospital in Austin, Texas. Katie is actually the veterinarian that I use for my six-year-old pup, Sky. Katie has been in the veterinary field for over 11 years and three of those years as a veterinarian. She attended the University of Arizona for her bachelor's in veterinary medicine and received her DVM from the University of California, Davis. She is newly married and they have a six-year-old German shepherd named Zona. Thank you for listening. We hope you have fun, laugh, learn, and get a little uncomfortable now, only to find yourself more comfortable to talk about poop later. Welcome to the Poop Plus Podcast, Episode 2, Poop Plus Dogs. Hey, Katie, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? We're doing good. Nice to see you, Katie. Nice to see you guys, too. Per usual, we like to ask our guests uh, two questions to kind of start us off uh, and get to know them just a little bit better. Uh, so, Katie, my first question is, why are you here today? Well, um, I think that it it's, I know it sounds silly, but it's an important topic. I mean, it's important to you know, clear up what normals and abnormals are and also to make this conversation normal. You know, I, I have this conversation several times per day. Well, of sorts, some, t some form of this conversation several times per day. And you would be surprised or you might not at how many people can't say the word poop or diarrhea or, you know, constipated or something. And I think that I don't know. I, I think it's, this sounds really crazy. It's an exciting topic to get people more normal with. Yeah. Let's normalize poop conversation. But like, yeah. I mean, let's, and the funny thing about it is that they're not talking about them. That's, that's even more interesting. <laughs> they're talking about their animal going to the bathroom and they're still oh super nervous about it. And so embarrassed, <laughs> so embarrassed about it. You would be surprised people just they can't tell me that their dog pooped. They have to say she did her business or they did a number two or something. You know, they have to use some sort of euphemism for poop or soft stool or whatever it might be. People get very, very embarrassed about it. <laughs> One time my dog was having explosive diarrhea. And I, I think I had said, 
it's like a fire hose was turned on. I mean, it was insane. Um, and that's important. It's very, very important to be very specific, uh, whether that be with a human doctor or an animal doctor. It, you, you, you know, you need to be able to describe that. That could be helpful um, in the uh, in the treatment phase and the diagnosis phase of of anything. Absolutely. I mean, I think sometimes people are afraid to give too much detail because they think they're grossing me out, but. <laughs> to, you know, use your example of fire hydrant, that tells me this is probably a small intestinal issue, not a large intestinal issue. So it gives you way more information than you would actually think. And so I think that owners need to drop the pride on this and just tell me how bad it is. Compare it to food, compare it to a fire hydrant. I don't care. I want to know. Well, you think dog fire hydrant, right? Sounds about right. Either you pee on it or your poop comes out like it. So, you know, yeah, absolutely. It is what it is. And my second question is, when was the last time you pooped? Well, Jordan, thank you for asking. It was <laughs> this morning. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm getting more regular. It was this morning. I'm very happy about it. <laughs> Coffee does the job. Talk to Mr. Regular. That Bobby is, it, 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 it makes me feel kind of crappy. Whoops. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Because the guy's just like, he's like clockwork. And I'm just like, you never know. Like I'm just a, yeah, I could be three times a day one day and then not poop for two days. It's crazy. I'm kind of the same way. I'm kind of a every two days type of person, but coughing on an empty nope. stomach. Speaking of things that are healthy for your digestive tract. <laughs> Coffee? No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Don't they tell you it's full of antioxidants and it's great for you? It's healthy for you? I mean, you? probably yes, but you, I mean, I drink coffee on an empty stomach every morning. I know that is not advised. So too much acid, yeah, way too much. So that's why I pooped this morning. Boom. I like it. There you go. And of course, Bobby is in the elite class. He is like the high society on regulatory pooping. What I want to do is kind of go over a little bit of a dog's digestive system. And, and, and we understand that breeds are very, very different, you know, but the makeup of it is pretty similar. And, you know, you and I were having a conversation and you said, you know, what's interesting is that a dog's digestive system is very similar to a human's digestive system. So, I mean, there's... <laughs> Even from the very start, when a dog sees food, this kind of goes back to like the Pavlov's dogs, they call it the cephalic phase of digestion. A dog literally seeing food is going to cause them to salivate. And that starts the digestive process. So, you know, starting in their mouth, you know, you have saliva that's lubricating the food, you have minimal, you know, enzymes in, um, you know, in the saliva, you have the chewing, those are all well, for the dogs that chew, most dogs don't chew. So it, it starts there. I mean, you would be surprised, but it actually starts before it even goes into their mouth. And then obviously, it travels down the esophagus, um, where peristalsis happens, and it kind of just pushes it down into the stomach that mostly is just helping to break down the food that they've just swallowed. Again, going back to the fact that most dogs aren't chewing their food, so it helps to break it down there. I always find it super interesting that the chemical digestion, even in humans, starts there in the mouth. Um, I know in the human, I believe it's uh, amylase that is 
um, that is uh, secreted in in the in the enzymes in the mouth um, to help with started to break down um, carbohydrates. Do you know if that's the same in an animal? So I know that in in dogs at least and, and cats as well, amylase is secreted from the pancreas, and that's that's kind of secreted into the small intestine. Gotcha. Um, so yes, that, I mean, they do produce similar enzymes, maybe not all in the same place. And I'll probably have to fact check that. To my knowledge, it's not produced in the saliva. Take us through the stomach and into the small intestine. So in the stomach, it kind of depends on what nutrient you are. Obviously, the one of the most important things that haps, happens in the stomach is that the stomach produces acid. So that starts to break down all your nutrients into, think of it as breaking it down into individual building blocks. And different nutrients are going to stay in there for different amounts of time. It's crazy that you have this like bag organ in your abdomen that can differentiate between, is this a fat, a protein or carbohydrate? And depending on what you are, you stay in there for a different amount of time because some nutrients just take longer to be broken down. So um, for example, carbohydrates are kind of spit out the fastest. And then I believe proteins and and fats are, are roughly the same. They take a little bit longer than carbohydrates. So depending on how long it's taking them to get broken down, that's when they move along to the small intestine. And, and it's kind of the same way. Is it, do they consider it a pyloric sphincter? Um, um, and same thing as a human, um, which yep. is, is kind of how they explain it, the gatekeeper to the small intestines from the stomach. From my, some of my research, it says that they can store food in there, dogs can, for eight to 12 hours. Normally, humans, it's only in there for like 30 to 90 minutes. So is, do you know if there's a reason behind them being able to store that food in there for that amount of time? I would, I, I don't know the exact answer to that. Um, I know that it can be up to that amount of time, but that's not necessarily your typical amount of time because it depends on the individual dog's digestive tract and the type of food that's staying in there. You know, if a dog swallows a a chip of bone, that's going to stay in there for probably the full 12 hours because the stomach's like, what do I do with this? I don't know how to process it. I don't know how to pass it along. So I don't know why it's necessarily much longer than a human's, but, um, you know, more than likely from my understanding of the dog digestive system, it's just because of the, you know, variety and the nutrients that they're taking in. We've gone through the mouth, through the esophagus, into the stomach, and now we're coming out of the stomach uh, through the pyloric uh, sphincter area into the small intestine. So what kind of starts going on in the duodenum? It's called the same thing as a human's. Yep. That first part of the small intestines. What's kind of going on once we get into that area? So the duodenum is, and that's how we pronounce it in the U.S., but I've had some professors here from the U.K., and they they call it the duodenum. So um, there's multiple ways to say that. (laughs) Um, But in the duodenum, that's kind of attached to the pancreas. And the pancreas is basically your organ that secretes the majority of your digestive enzymes. It's also where the bile duct from the liver and gallbladder kind of secrete into the small intestine. So that's where you start breaking down fats. Um, That's where you start breaking down most of your carbs and proteins and different enzymes will do different things. So basically it's taking 
whatever the stomach didn't process, breaking it down even further and passing it along to the next portion. In the remainder of the small intestinal tract, you have the jejunum and then you have the ileum. So that's the majority of your basic nutrient absorption, proteins, carbohydrates, vitamins, minerals, fats. Um, so they're all going to happen kind of at different phases throughout those last two sections, as well as further actual mechanical breakdown. Like the majority of the GI tract is made up largely of muscle. So it's actually contracting and um, further breaking down those nutrients to be absorbed. So that's kind of the rest of the small intestine is just absorbing those nutrients that the pancreas and the duodenum have provided. Um, you know, so now they're in a digestible form. They are, you know, linked up with other proteins so that they can be digested. They're linked up with other enzymes so they can be digested. And then they move on to the colon. Um, now the cecum is the dog equivalent of an appendix. Everyone always asks, what does the cecum do? And the answer is, it does the same thing that the appendix does, which is really nothing. Um, it's just it's just a link, right? It's it's yep. we as humans have a cecum as well. It's considered the cecum, but we've got the little tail that would be the appendix. Um, I believe yep. a little protrusion. So it's literally just called the cecum. Yep, it's just the whole thing is in a dog or anyways is a cecum. It's just the little bag that comes off of the side of the. Um, you know, colon, and it doesn't really do anything. Um, dogs don't really get appendicitis like humans do, or at least we don't commonly see that. But it is a, you know, it's a roadblock if a dog eats something that they shouldn't. It's an extra little pocket where something can get stuck theoretically. And it doesn't rupture? I've never seen it. Um, that's not to say it can't happen. The only times I've seen it kind of close to happening is not just because of inflammation, like you will see in a human. Um, if it's gonna rupture, it's because there's something stuck in it, a bone, a sock, a ball, a squeaky toy, something like that. But I've, I've personally never seen a cecum rupture. We've got the colon, and uh, that's where a lot of moisture, some nutrients, right, I think is still is still taken out of there. Yeah. Um, but mostly water is reabsorbed. Same thing with a human. There are technically three portions to the colon. You have your ascending colon, then you have your transverse colon, which is kind of the bottom of the U, and then your descending colon. The descending colon, I think, is what people generally think of as the colon. But there's really those three sections. It kind of goes in a U. It's pretty much the same thing as a human. Yeah, it's not quite as fancy. We don't have any, you know, or we, I'm not a dog. Dogs don't have the sigmoid colon. <laughs> um, it's, it's not super, super long, but you're exactly right. The majority of the colon's job is for moisture absorption. And that's where we see the majority of our issues when a dog is developing large intestinal diarrhea because the colon is not doing its job of absorbing the water. There are some things that we, we give our dogs and obviously they're able to handle a variety, some variety in their diet, but as far as like greasy, obviously, you know, feeding them from the table, I would be interested to hear what you uh, would say about that, that, and, and also, you know, changing, like going from eating from the table to not can that, you know, it's, it's just like switching their food. You, take, you have to kind of 
move them in that direction by doing, you know, a quarter and then add a half and then, you know, do all of that. So is their stomach really sensitive? Is that one of the reasons why we have to do things like that? That depends on the dog. I will say that the majority of dog digestive systems can't handle the variety that we think they can as humans, because as humans, we have variety three times a day minimum, or typically, you know, three times a day. So some dogs can handle that. There are dogs that, you know, have been eating a bunch of different types of food ever since they were puppies. And those are the dogs that we say have an iron stomach. They could probably eat a hot dog or a piece of bacon and be totally fine with it. Would I ever advise that? No, because the majority of dogs can't handle that. On the topic of greasy foods, the reason why most dogs can't handle it is because of how their GI tract has evolved over time. They're not made to handle bacon like a human can handle it. Basically, you know, you eat a piece of bacon and our pancreas says, oh, bacon, yummy. This is a little bit of fat. Let me release some lipase. A dog is like, oh my gosh, I've never seen this before. The pancreas freaks out and produces a ton of lipase. And then the pancreas is now inflamed and you have pancreatitis. So greasy foods in general are the biggest cause of pancreatitis in dogs or IBD, just inflammatory bowel disease. You know, like I said, a lot of dogs can handle variety in that they could have, you know, some turkey off of your plate at Thanksgiving and would they get sick? Probably not. But other dogs, you know, for example, especially as they get older, if they're developing inflammatory bowel disease, which is all too common, you give them a protein that their body has not seen before or that it doesn't agree with, And you could run into a huge cycle of issues, not just diarrhea, but vomiting, just generalized inflammation in their GI tract. So it, it really does depend on the dog, but in general, I advise against variety because you're setting up the body for inflammation. That's really interesting. I I'm wondering, so everything we're talking about right now is kind of unhealthy human food. Maybe. I mean, I've heard Lots of stories about people feeding, they only feed their dog hamburgers or their dog loves McDonald's. But I've also heard people that like one of our, one of our friends' dogs was overweight and their veterinarian suggested, okay, you're going to give them a quarter of his dog food that he's used to having each day. I mean, cut him way down, but to kind of fill his stomach and make him feel satisfied, he's also going to have green beans. And so green beans was kind of the filler uh, and he lost a ton of weight. There are definitely foods that are okay to give your dog that are not going to cause that same degree of inflammation unless you have a severely sensitive stomach. Green beans are perfectly safe. Carrots are perfectly safe. Broccoli is totally fine. You know, and a lot of lean meats are going to be fine as well. What you run into is if you have you know, a 60 pound dog and you're giving it a quarter cup of its regular food, which should be complete and balanced with the correct amount of protein, carbohydrates, fats, vitamins, minerals, and then the rest of it is all green beans, then you're kind of throwing off your nutrient balance a little bit. So some degree of 
fillers to keep them satiated is completely fine, but you don't want the majority of their diet to be, you know, a carrot or green beans. I always recommend using those types of things as treats where people are used to giving their dog, you know, a little piece of pepperoni or something really fatty and salty. My dog thinks that carrots are the best treat in the whole world. So you can use those types of things to supplement or substitute a little bit. Now, I kind of wanted to go into the grain and or no grain situation. What's the difference? If I'm at the store and I'm looking at these two different things, they literally, they say they have the exact same ingredients, but one has no grain and one has grain. What's my thought process? So that's kind of a recent hot topic of, and I won't even call it a debate, but of research. I would say roughly in the last like five to seven years is when these studies started on grain-free diets. And historically, there was a thought process that grains might cause allergies in dogs. And that kind of started when humans were going towards gluten-free as a dietary trend. So, you know, a lot of dog dietary trends have followed human dietary trends. And that's not all, you know, in a lot of cases, that's appropriate. And it's not appropriate in a lot of cases. Basically, we started seeing a specific heart disease called dilated cardiomyopathy or DCM way more commonly in the last decade than we used to. We used to only see it in Dobermans and Great Danes. So that- Will you break that down for us real quick? The cardiomyopathy for the layman turn, what, what would that layman term be? So um, cardiomyopathy, just that term just means heart disease, a disease of the heart muscle. Dilated cardiomyopathy is essentially when the heart expands similar to a balloon. So those heart muscles are getting thinner and thinner and thinner. The heart's getting bigger, but it's not gaining more muscle. It's just this loose, weak muscle that can't properly pump blood forward. I'm sorry. Does that have anything to do with age? I mean, are we seeing that in older animals or is this something that could be like found in a younger animal? So that's the issue is we're starting to see it more in younger animals. You, you can see it with more with age for sure, but it used to just be a genetic thing, you know, Dobermans and Great Danes they, most of them carry this gene for DCM. And as they get older, they're more and more prone to it. But the problem that triggered these studies is we're starting to see it in young golden retrievers, labs, dachshunds, shih tzus, Maltese, you know, all these other dogs that we never saw it in before at a young, young age. So you know, when these studies started, we're trying to find like, what's the common link between all these dogs. So they tried to do as much of a case controlled study as they could. So they chose the breed golden retriever because you didn't commonly see this disease in golden retrievers. And now you're seeing it very, very commonly in golden retrievers. They found that grain-free diets happen to be one of the common links. So they kind of dove into that and they started studying after that in general, you know, what disease process are we seeing with dogs who are eating grain-free diets? So this study was done between the nutrition and the cardiology departments at UC Davis. And these studies gained so, so much ground and so much attention that the FDA has actually started their own independent study to figure out 
the why question. Is it truly lack of grain that's causing this heart disease? Or is it what we're substituting for grain, the legumes, the lentils, that's causing the heart disease? So we still don't have the exact answers for that because those studies are still going on. In my opinion, can, you know, can I tell you for sure that every grain-free diet is going to cause that disease? No, absolutely not. That's definitely not the case. But is there enough evidence for me to generally advise against grain-free diets right now? Yes, at least until we have more answers from the why studies. I worked for seven years in a feed store. One of the things that came up a lot at the feed store was um, the corn. They, they supplemented corn a lot of times in cheaper dog foods, and it's usually the main ingredient in cheap dog foods to fill. And what we found is lots of dogs have corn allergies. And, and they would find that through um, the dog would like be chewing on its paws or it'd be losing hair. Um, so this grain was, that they're using in a lot of the feeds was, was causing this. Is that, is that a thing? So that was a belief for a very long period of time. And there are dogs for sure that have corn allergies. So that's not, not true. But more recent studies have shown that the majority of food allergies in dogs are actually protein based. So not an allergy to protein but an allergy to a specific protein. So allergy testing, specific allergy testing is a lot more common now than it might've been, you know, 10 years ago. So we can actually see what a dog is reacting to similar to allergy testing in humans. And in probably 90% of cases with food allergies, it's to a protein source. So you know, there are people, there will be people that will feed their dog a specific food that has corn in it. And is corn a highly digestible, you know, source of a nutrient? No, but that doesn't always indicate that it's an allergen. You know, they might poop out a whole corn kernel out the other end, but just because a dog is now chewing their paws doesn't mean that that's the nutrient that they're allergic to. It is one of the most common ingredients you know, filler fibers are, you know, even if they're not digestible, doesn't always mean they're the source of inflammation. We've talked about, you know, obviously things that they put in now, I kind of want to go to, I don't know how to say it, except for just saying their stance. Sky, who is my dog, she will, she will literally, if you ever see like those old baseball players, and some baseball players still do it, they kind of set, get ready to bat and they dig that right foot or left foot in the ground, right? And they're just like waiting just to kind of brace themselves. Is there something that naturally they've just, they figured out as far as how to, you know, arching your back is the best way to do that? So I actually, to be completely honest, I never thought about it that much until I saw that you had that question. And I thought about it a lot because I thought it was really interesting. Um, and here's what I came up with. This is not science-based whatsoever. But imagine the, you know, the fact that obviously dogs live their lives on four legs and cats as well, as applies to them too. They can't balance on two legs. And so, you know, imagine you're going to poop in the woods. You already have to balance and squat on two legs that you're already used to balancing on. Now a dog used to balancing on four legs has to squat so they 
are essentially doing the same sitting position that we're doing, but they have to keep their front legs on the ground. So that's why you see that like arch in their back. So that's my own personal theory. I don't know how much truth there is behind that, but that is, you know, that squatting position is what sets them up for their colon to kind of, you know, go right down to the poop chute. Um, <laughs> so that's not a scientific answer, but that's my personal opinion. <laughs> Imagine if they took their front feet off the ground, they would just look like us sitting down on a toilet. That's true. If And then if they were to cross their arms, it would look even weirder. And then, you know, they're yeah. looking at their phone and bust out their cell yeah. phone. It'd be, it'd be very interesting. What should dog owners look for as far as a healthy poop? So in, you know, obviously this varies a little bit from dog to dog. Here's what I always tell owners, and this is kind of a gross visual, but if a dog is having a healthy poop, you don't want it to be so hard that you could not squish it between your fingers, but you want it to be firm and formed enough to be able to pick it up off the grass with a poop bag, obviously, or a rake or whatever, without smearing it on the grass and leaving a huge mess. So it should have form, it should be able to be picked up, but it should not be rock solid. You know, it should be a standard brown color that you would imagine. Um, there's gonna be slight variations depending on, you know, what they're eating, how they digest things. And surprisingly, their stress level too is going to also contribute to how soft or formed that is. If things are varying away from what typical is for your dog, you should probably at least be giving your veterinarian a phone call to ask about that. With the the external factors, I think that's super interesting stress. And that was one of my questions. So obviously if it's a dog that is that was just adopted, or in my case, it was living with my grandmother and now uh, Sky is living with me. So there are some of these external factors that we don't think about. Are there any other effects like stress that can, anything that can affect a dog's ability to completely void or to not be able to digest something properly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I do think stress is probably the most common factor that I see that leads to that variation or inability to defecate normally, you can, you know, there's a million disease processes that will affect that parasites. You know, some people will say, oh, my dog's been eating the same food for 10 years. Why would he react to it now? That can't be it. Well, that's not true. Their digestive tract can change over time and they can become more sensitive to different foods over time. So, you know, food, allergies, stress, outside disease processes, medications. If an animal is really sensitive to antibiotics is probably the one we see most commonly. While antibiotics can be very necessary to treat certain infections, it's also going to clear out a lot of their healthy bacteria in their GI tract. So as crazy as it sounds, sometimes we'll do an antibiotic with a probiotic at the same time so that we can keep that balance. So that's a big one that we see or anti-inflammatories for pain that some dogs will take that, you know, they will dogs that are more sensitive to it. It will cause more inflammation in their gut and cause variations in their stool. Just to stay in that vein, you said a parasite. What are some ways to prevent that? 
And then what are some symptoms maybe you're looking for if there could be a parasite? The most common parasites that we see in dogs can be prevented with the same medication you should be giving them for heartworm prevention. While most owners are giving, you know, heartworm prevention with the primary purpose of preventing heartworms, especially here in Austin, since we see that so commonly, that same medication will also prevent against roundworms and hookworms. And that's a once monthly thing that you're giving them. And it's an antiparasitic that, you know, you're not preventing your dog from ever having roundworms or hookworms, you're preventing your dog from being clinically affected by it. So they're in their system. We know that roundworms and hookworms are in the environment. If your dog goes outside to take a poo, your, your dog is susceptible. So their prevention once a month can kind of clear those out of their GI tract. So that's the most important way. And then we always, you know, even if your dog is on prevention or not, we always recommend at least an annual fecal test because there are some parasites that don't always pop up as far as symptoms go. You know, you might think that your dog is good and fine and healthy. And then we run a, you know, the annual fecal test and we find that they have a parasite called coccidia or giardia or, you know, a lot of other diseases like that can you know, our parasites like that can be something that they pick up from the environment. If a dog is going to have symptoms, most of the time it starts with diarrhea. Um, not all dogs will develop that as their first symptom. For some dogs, if they have a really heavy parasite burden, then you might notice malnutrition as one of their first symptoms because those parasites are eating all the nutrients that the dog swallowed so the dog isn't allowed or isn't able to digest those nutrients. You might see vomiting because any inflammation in the GI tract is going to lead to nausea. So you can see vomiting as another symptom as well. And so just to, to bring, I'm going to try to well round this. So you talked about picking up a parasite when they poop. I'm going to talk about picking up your own dog's poop, because that's something uh, you see it everywhere. You see people still not picking up their dog poop and I don't get it, but I wanted to see just what are some things let's do this. I don't want to pick up poop. Convince me why I should. Well, I would say the, the most common reason is nobody else wants to step in your dog's poop. But if we're talking about <laughs> medical reasons, yeah. Um, and I've had plenty of incidents where I accidentally stepped in, you know, someone or some dog's poop. Um, nobody wants to go through that, first of all. The other big parts of that are infectious diseases, parasites being one of the most common. And it's not just that it could affect someone else's dog, it could also affect a human. Most parasites that dogs get commonly are zoonotic, meaning they could potentially be passed to humans. Do most healthy adult humans, you know, pick up these infections if their dogs have them? Unlikely. But if you're walking through, you know, Zilker Park and your dog poops on the ground and you leave it there, you don't know if someone who's immunocompromised is going to walk through there or a child is going to walk through there or someone walks their puppy through there, which they probably shouldn't be at Zilker if they're not fully vaccinated. <laughs> but puppies obviously have a weaker immune system. So diseases that your dog might not be affected by 
could potentially affect other humans and other dogs as well. That's, I think, a huge reason. Well, I'm convinced. I was convinced before, so I'm still convinced. What Katie was alluding to was Zilker Park. So we we are in Austin, Texas. Bobby's in Pflugerville, which is just north of us. Uh, but we're in Austin, Texas. And if you know anything about Austin City Limits, the music festival, it's there in Zilker Park. And um, the when you said you shouldn't be bringing your puppy to Zilker Park, the only thing I can think of is I'm a 20-something guy and I want to pick up chicks. So I'm going to take my little puppy out there because every girl in the world will want to talk to me <laughs> with it. <laughs> so that's the reason. That's the reason you bring your puppy that ha- does not have all of its shots to, to Zilker Park. Yeah. Which is exactly, you just explained how I met my wife. And <laughs> did it's she true. have the puppy or did you? We both did. We, and the, we had two completely different types of dogs, but they were almost, they were born within a few days of each other. Oh, wow. Um, really yeah. Cool. And so do what? I said it was meant to be. For sure. Absolutely. And they were our first, our first children. So that that's how that went down. Uh, but right there in Zilker park. And so, um, and, and the Austin community really embraces dogs. I mean, it's just a widely accepted in restaurants, you know, on patios, uh, stores, we need to pick up after our animals, if not just for them also for yourselves, obviously, I had no idea until you said that, that you could actually, that we could get something from that. Yeah. Yes. Zoonosis or, was it, what, how do you say it? Zoonosis is like the plural form of it, but mm-hmm. a zoonotic disease is essentially a disease that can be passed from an animal to a human or vice versa. And zoonotic is not like a, a it sounds like a clothing brand, Zoonotic, you know, it's, it's, it's a surf brand or something, which would be, which would be horrible and, and based on, well, maybe not horrible, it'd be based on poop. One of the things that I'm most interested to talk about, the hemorrhoids. Tell us a little bit about dogs, because let's be honest, when Sky poops, I mean, it's like the, the, the sea is parting and you, st- you do see some redness around the rectum on the anus. And it is red and you're thinking, is that a hemorrhoid? I will say that dogs don't very commonly get hemorrhoids in the same sense that humans do. So, you know, hemorrhoid essentially is essentially like a burst or expanded blood vessel, like a, almost like a blood blister from my understanding in humans. I will say I've personally never seen a hemorrhoid in a dog. That's not to say they can't get them, but if they are going to get them, it's kind of from chronic straining. Dogs that have been constipated or dehydrated would be more prone to getting something like that, be more prone to rupturing blood vessels in their rectum. Seeing a little bit of red tissue or pink tissue when your dog defecates as their rectum kind of prolapses out a little bit is normal as long as that is all uniform. You're not seeing a focal mass or focal piece of redness. Usually if a, if a dog presents to me and the owner says my dog has a hemorrhoid, nine times out of 10, it's actually probably not a hemorrhoid. Um, dogs will commonly get rectal polyps, which are more of like a um, an outpouching or like um, think of it as a little inflamed cyst in their rectum and they, you can see them as a dog defecates. 
they can very commonly get rectal tumors that can either be benign or cancerous that look like hemorrhoids. And then dogs with anal gland issues, which is a whole other fun topic. If they have an issue with their anal glands, that can also look like what a human hemorrhoid would look like. Okay. Well, that's good to know because in, when you say prolapsed, a lot of people, that's kind of a scary word, especially when we're talking about, especially in humans, right? A prolapsed anus or a prolapsed, excuse me, rectum. And it's good to know that it is normal to be there, um, that kind of redness. I'm so glad that humans don't figure out each other by sniffing their backside. I, I've never really understood it. Supposedly, and there's, I mean, not a ton of research on the anal glands, unfortunately, but it is a scent gland. So it's kind of their, hello, what is your uh, genetic makeup? Like, let me get to know you by smelling your butt. It is a scent gland. It doesn't really serve any other purpose other than that purely. So that's why dogs are smelling it. Not all dogs are producing a large amount of like anal gland fluid, but I mean, obviously dogs have much, I know it's real gross, you know, dogs obviously have much stronger smelling senses than we do. So even if a human can't pick it up, a dog probably can. And trust me, if a dog is leaking anal gland fluid, a human can smell it. <laughs> so my Weimaraner in college, the same dog that allowed me to find my beautiful wife, there's a story about that where he, I, out of nowhere, he just does the doggy scoot across the carpet, except it made the entire room smell horrible. And I didn't know what it was at first. And then, you know, I had a, a buddy of mine that was also a vet tech for a while while I was in college and he, he knew exactly what it was. I don't think there are words to describe how bad that smell is. I mean, a lot of dogs don't ever have that issue in their life. I will say most don't, but when your dog starts scooting on the floor, it's time to get their anal glands emptied out um, because that's not a smell that anyone wants in their house. It's real nasty. And is that something we would call you about? Um, yes, or one of my veterinary technicians. There you go. <laughs> if there is an anal gland problem, I will address it. If it's a standard, you know, a lot of dogs need their anal glands expressed every, you know, two to eight weeks that's something you can come in on the same basis as uh, getting their nails trimmed. Some people will be like, oh, can I bring my dog in for a pedicure and a anal gland expression? One of the things I want to know, Katie, is when people come to you and they, they tell you that they consider what their dog's doing to be normal and you're like, oh, that's not normal at all. What's the first thing that pops to your mind when I say that? Well, I get a lot of, so basically, and this varies with every vet that you go into, I have my technicians that will ask basic history questions. And one of those questions is always, has your dog had any diarrhea or how are your dog's stool? And at least once a day, I get an owner saying, well, my dog has soft stool, but that's normal for her or she has soft stool once a day, but that's normal for her. That's not necessarily normal. It might be typical for your dog because of an issue that they have, 
but it's not normal in the same sense as saying, oh, but that's healthy for her. The one exception I will say to that is, and this applies to my dog in some situations, what I was talking about earlier with stress causing a little bit of soft stool, stress is not always bad, negative, worried, anxiety stress. It, you know, a lot of dogs when they go to the dog park or when they go on a walk or a run, they get excited and their body doesn't absorb as much uh, water in their colon when they're excited. So going to the dog bark and having a little bout of soft stool is normal, I would say, as long as their subsequent stools are all firm. But the majority of the time when owners say that, that's not necessarily the case. They might see this has always been the case for my dog for the last six months or the last year, or even the last five years, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's not a problem that we shouldn't be addressing. Um, usually indicates that there's a problem with how your dog is digesting its food or how your dog is responding to some stressor in the environment. So the first thing that pops in my head is how do I explain to them now that this isn't normal? Um, it's just typical for your dog and now we have a problem that we need to address. I don't know how Sky absorbs any water because she's always so excited and so happy. Her little nub of a tail, uh, I think Katie referred to it. She goes, when she saw Sky, was like, I've seen that tail before. I know that tail and how much it wags. Her whole body wags. <laughs> her whole body wags. And I just want to say thank you just for taking the time to to chat with us about what some people would think is an awkward conversation, but hopefully uh, maybe it made it a little less awkward with us kind of opening up and talking about it today. But before we go, I, I wanted to just kind of give you an opportunity. Is there, is there like a website? Is there an Instagram page or social media? Is there something that we can go to where we can find you? Yeah. So, I mean, I work at North Austin Animal Hospital. I think that, you know, for the majority of people, obviously, who are not in North Austin specifically, I would just encourage you to, in the majority of cases, and I can't vouch for all veterinarians, trust your vet. They're doing this because they care about animals. As far as online resources go, the internet can be a deep, dark hole of misinformation. I highly recommend veterinarypartner.com a really helpful resource for pet owners that has really good valid medical information if you're ever worried about something that your dog is eaten that might not be good for them the pet poison hotline is a really good resource if you're wondering about food and what type of foods are good versus bad wasava which is w-s-a-v-a has a really good nutritional handout outline online that you can reference. But I think the most important thing is, you know, every animal is different. There's no hard rule of thumb for what one animal should be eating or how one animal should be digesting something. There's no sponsorship involved with any of those websites that uh, Katie's not sponsored with them, is, is not sponsored by them. Um, we don't sponsor them. So just so you know that, but that it is just a great resource to, to use if you do have questions. You guys had really, really great questions. If there's anything I didn't explain fully or appropriately, feel free to round back. I'm happy to help in any way I can. And this is definitely a fun topic for me. I know it sounds crazy, but it is. Well, obviously, Obviously it's a fun topic for us too. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Poop Plus Podcast. If you want to find out more about where Katie works at North Austin Animal Hospital, you can visit NorthAustinAnimalHospital.com. Want to hear more from Bobby and myself? You can currently find us on Apple Podcasts or check out the Podbean app on Instagram at poop.plus.podcast or email us at poop.plus.podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Questions, comments, poop jokes, poop puns, or just to say hi. We hope you will tune in to the next episode where we will be discussing a superhero's number two. Thank you again, and we will see you on the other side of the flush. Thank <music> you.